Now, for some of you, you won't know these names. Actually, for most of you, you won't know these names. But Ben Wallace, Bill Russell, Chris Bosch, Chris Webber, and Paul Pierce. They were inductees to the, to the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2021. They were acknowledged as they were voted on by a couple of committees. They were acknowledged by these committees as players of exceptional skill and of their contribution to the game of basketball. Thus, they were entered into the class of 2021 for the Basketball Hall of Fame, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts, in the US. So essentially, their enshrinement into this Hall of Fame would permanently cement, well, for as long as the Hall of Fame is around, I guess, but would cement their place in the history of the game of basketball for not only their skill level, but also their character as people. In the Bible, we have a similar acknowledgement. It has been commonly referred to by commentators as the Faith Hall of Fame, as revealed in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're given an account of numerous men and women of God who accomplished great things for God and his kingdom. But where the Basketball Hall of Fame focused on their skill, focused on their contribution to the game, focused on their individual achievements, the Faith Hall of Fame focuses on one's trust, on one's dependence, and upon one's reliance upon the God of Israel. For faith is not about the amount of faith that you have, but rather where or upon whom your faith is rested. Trevor McElwain, who was one of my lecturers in Bible college, he essentially shared how when you read the Bible, and Brad made mention to this when he referred to Daniel, we look at Daniel in the lion's den, but the story is not about Daniel in the lion's den. The story is about what God was able to do through Daniel. The focus is God and what God could accomplish through Daniel by faith. The story of the taking of the promised land in Joshua is not about Joshua and what he's able to accomplish, but rather what God could do through a person named Joshua in the claiming of the promised land. The story is not about Moses and how Moses delivered Israel. It's rather what God was able to do through Moses in delivering his people from bondage in Egypt. See, the focus has changed. It's not the amount of faith these individuals had, but rather what God was able to do through the little faith that they did have. It's like having, I would much rather have a little faith, if I had to cross a river that was covered in ice, I would much rather have a little bit of faith in ice that is that big, rather than having a lot of faith in ice that is that big. So it's, a matter of not, it's not a matter of the amount of faith, it's what you have your faith in. So this month, we're going to take this journey of faith through this Hall of Fame. I'm going to study the lives and the example and the experiences of various individuals as recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at three things today uh, as we get underway. We're going to look at what I call, as in the title, faith defined, faith exercised, and faith rewarded. 
And we're going to look at that from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to work our way through it a little portion at a time. So bow your heads with me as we open in a word of prayer, and let's see what the Lord does as he teaches and ministers to each of our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. We thank you so much for the way you were, you were able to accomplish so much through feeble and broken vessels such as us. We thank you so much for the examples of men and women that you called to minister and to serve you and were able to do amazing things because you were their God. And we know, we know that you seek to do amazing things through us as well. So we ask this morning that you will give us open eyes to see the greatness of who you are, that you'll give us open ears to hear your voice as you speak to us through your word, and that you'll give us responsive hearts to your spirit as you not only convict and challenge, but also change us our mindsets, our heart attitudes, our ideology, that we might be more focused, dependent, and reliant upon you. Lead us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in today's world, logic and scientific discovery has sort of given the perception of faith as being irrelevant. It sort of views the whole idea that it's, it's absent of human reasoning and intellect. I have met people, because I work at the high school that I work at, I have met people, students and teachers alike, that like to boast about their capacity to, to freely think, that they, they, they promote their ideas of, of free thought, of being individual thinkers, and they never really consider the fact that a lot of their ideologies, a lot of their views, a lot of the things that they hold to are actually based upon what somebody else has said previously. It's actually an, an element of faith that they're willing to, to use to back up their specific ideas and their specific views that accommodate the way they want to live. But regardless of, of somebody's ideology, regardless of somebody's worldview, Everybody, everybody, regardless of who you are, regardless of whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, whether you're a, a Muslim or a Buddhist, whether you're a Christian, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody exercises some element of faith in their lives. We all do. We have the scientists who trust in the scientific method, who have a hypothesis and seek to prove that hypothesis, take a step of faith. You have the mathematician who trusts and have faith in the process of reaching the specific conclusion to the numbers and the problems that are presented to them. For the, the scholar, they have their specific philosophy that they hold on to to actually give them some idea, some sort of sense, or to make some sort of sense about what life is. And for the religious, we have our faith in the sacred scriptures and what evidences there are that help support what the scriptures teach. We all have an element of faith. And while you'll get some people who say, no, 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 I'm, I'm a man of science, or no, no, I'm a man of, of thinking, I'm a man of reasoning, we all, all of us demonstrate this whole idea of what faith is. And we either use those particular tools to try and tear down others' perspectives, or we find those tools to confirm what, what we believe and whether they are true or not. So it is very important for us today to begin with defining what faith is. Define what faith is biblically for us 
as believers so we can greater understand the wonder of this chapter and the greatness of the God of Israel. So we're going to look at those three things this morning, faith defined, faith exercised, and faith rewarded. So starting from the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11, we're looking at faith defined. The first thing that we need to establish, the first thing we need to come to an understanding is that the faith that we have as Christians, the faith that we have as people, and, and I think this applies to regardless of whatever you hold to, the faith that we are to have is to be based on evidence. It's, it's what's called a reasonable faith. We're told within the scriptures that the just shall live by faith. But our faith is not unreasonable. Our faith is not blind. Our faith is not irrational. Like I said before, critics have stated that if you're a person of faith, that you lack intelligence. Not understanding that some of the greatest scientists in the past have been people of faith have been Christians. Actually, the, the father of modern science was actually a believer himself. But the, the, the idea is our faith is based upon facts. Facts laid out for us historically. Facts laid out for us biblically. Facts laid out for us archaeologically, if that's how you say the word. Facts laid out for us geographically. We have, in other words, a reasonable faith, according to William Lane Craig, who's a, a Christian philosopher. In my simplistic terms, this is what I believe faith means. Faith is the action that stems from what is believed, or what you know to be true. I, I did this way, way back in 2008. I used this example, and I apologize for using it. Um, but years ago, when I was manager of a campsite, they, they set up a pendulum. You know what a pendulum is? With a weight at the end, and you swing it. All right. So we were told by the person that was actually, I don't know why I'm leaning into you. It's like I'm telling, it's like I'm telling you a secret. So what had happened? So what had happened was um, he explained to us what the law of the pendulum is. And he was saying that because of wind resistance and air friction, the weight will not return back to the same point from which it was released. And he said, okay, that makes sense. And so he said, Joe, come here. So I went up there in front of a whole bunch of kids. He put the weights at my face and he said, Joe, do you believe the law of the pendulum. And I said, yes, I do. He says, do you believe that because of wind resistance and air friction, that the weight will not return back to the same point from which it was released? And I said, yes, I believe that. And he said, okay, because you believe that, when I release the weight, you will not move from the point that you are standing right now. So I stood there, he released the weight, I watched the weight go out, I could hear it. And then it came back and it stopped here. I didn't flinch. Why? Because I believed the truth that was presented to me, the facts that was presented, that, what, that is what faith is. Faith is the action that is the, what follows the truth that has been established. Therefore, because of that, our faith is to rest in one who is trustworthy. Our faith is to rest in the one who cannot lie, as we're told in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Our faith is to rest in the one who is called the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. Our faith is to rest in the one who spoke and the world came into being, according to Genesis 1 and 2. 
And before you dismiss such reasoning and say, well, Joe, all of those evidences, all those things that you've chosen to back yourself up with, why you'd have faith in the God of the Bible, is taken from the Bible. Well, yeah, of course. That's the best place to find it. Because in the scriptures is where it talks about who God is, about what he's like. And this has already been proven as being reliable. But you take information from books all the time. So to sit there and say that I'm, going to, I, I'm taking it from a book, it's like saying, well, Joe, you can only find the president if you go to the White House. Well, that's because of where he is. That's where he's supposed to live. That's silly reason to say, well, can't you trust things outside of it? Yes, there are other things outside of it, but to know who God is and what he is and what he does, that is to be found within the Bible. And this is why we, we, we trust things from books all the time. And in the age of information that we're in now, where everybody's a, a, an expert because they can Google it. I heard one person say he only sort of appreciates information that, that people glean from libraries. Because on libraries, there are two distinct sections, nonfiction and fiction, where on the internet, everything is seemed to be presented as nonfiction. And people have ideas that promote as truth. So it's very important then that the stuff that we look at coincides with reality. So when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read this. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Now, that word confidence is translated in the King James as substance. In other words, our hope, our assurance is actually given or made some substantial because of the action I choose to, I choose, sorry, I choose to take in trusting in someone, someone who's reliable. I choose to commit to someone. I choose to devote myself to someone that has revealed himself to be trustworthy that has revealed himself to be true. Faith is responsive in nature. Thus, my faith is in response to the God of creation, which I look around me and see. My faith is in response to the promises and the truths of his word. My faith is in response to his son, Jesus Christ, as revealed in the scriptures and as I've personally experienced in my own life. A. A. Hodge said this, faith must have adequate evidence, else it is mere superstition. Faith must have adequate evidence, or else it is mere superstition. The substance of my faith takes what is laid out before me, like the record of life, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and me trusting in him. Me trusting in that. That is how my faith is given weight. That is how my faith is given substance and is not easily moved because of the one who inhabits it. Here's an example. Not yet, not yet. Okay, here is my box. Let's say this box represents faith. Okay? Now, depending upon what you actually have in your faith, whatever inhabits your faith will determine how easily that faith is moved. For example, because there's nothing in there, or it could be something very light, it is moved easily. You can change from one thing to another. This is a terrible example, I know, but let me explain. B-Rad, come here, please. But uh, let's say, let's say B-Rad, Brad, Brad, let's say Brad represents, can you stand inside the box, please? Yeah, nice wave. Everyone, if you, if you wave, to, wave to Brad. Okay, so stand in the box. 
Now, because Brad's in heat, this inhabits my faith. Now, the box is solid. The box doesn't move. For that to be actually moved, for that faith to be changed, the one who inhabits it must be removed. And if Brad, I'm not going to push Brad out. He's far too big. And I, how much do you weigh? 97. He's 97. I'm not going to push 97 kilos, okay? All right, so that, that is basically what happens. Now, if the person who inhabits our faith is the person of Jesus Christ, then this becomes immovable. This becomes steadfast and permanent. Why? Because this is inhabited by the person of Christ. Thank you very much, Brad. Give him one clap for you guys. All right. Yeah, be careful. Don't hurt yourself. I don't want you hurting yourself when you step out of faith. Okay, here we go. Okay. So, my faith is given substance. It's given weight because it is Christ who inhabits it. It is Christ who rests in there. And that is why my faith can be steadfast. So my faith could be sure. Now, skip verse 2 at the, sec- at, the, at the moment because we're going to go back to that. Jump down to verse 3. But it is why by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, the universe is an amazing place. It is huge in its scope. It is vast in its magnitude. And to think that all the advances of scientific discovery, with everything that they've learned, realize how much we don't know about God's creation, about the universe's beginnings. And, and, and both non-Christian and Christian alike, both theist and atheist alike, have all sought to provide answers as to why or as to how the universe began. And once again, we both reach these conclusions by faith. We are, of the, we are of the view that God created the heavens and the earth, that God spoke and all came into existence. We believe, according to what the scriptures teach, that we are created in God's image with intent, with purpose, and with ultimate destination to be in God's presence. We look at this universe and we see the amazing work of God. That is one view. The other view is that God doesn't exist, that everything around us came about naturally according to the universe's laws. And that these, combined with time and chance, brought about everything around us. Now, my only issue with that, and I really like the argument this apologist, by the name of Frank Turek, said. He said, to continue to look for a natural cause for the beginning of the universe when natural laws did not yet exist. I want to say that again. To continue to look for a natural cause to the universe when natural laws did not yet exist is like spending your life trying to prove how you gave birth to your mother. That's basically what he says. He says that that's not, it's, not, it's not possible if things didn't exist. There has to have been an initiator. There has to have been a designer. There has to have been a maker. And this is why when you look back at verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. They were commended for their faith. They were commended for their faith that is described in verse 1, that it is the substance of things hoped for. They, 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 that in verse 1, because of how it's exercised in verse 3, they understand that all of this couldn't happen by chance, but had to be brought about by a God who is great. They understood 
That's why they committed. They understood, like I said, that what was made needed a maker, that the creation needed a creator, that the complexity of the world's design, including themselves, demanded a designer. This is the self-evident truth of creation. It's called an axiom. An axiom is called a self-evident truth. And I like the description one person said. He said, you don't need to look at the person building, to, building the building to know that somebody built it. I look around here, and I see this building. For example, our cross here that was lovely, kindly provided by, by John O'Shea and Martin Fong. Okay? Now, I was there when they, they did all the chiseling. I was there when uh, Mr. Smith, Mr. Steve Smith, um, used the, the, the bench saw to actually get things in and then to put it together. These guys put it together. But I didn't need to be there to know that somebody put that together. Why? Because the evidence is right there. I didn't have to witness them doing it, even though I did witness them doing it, to know that somebody else put that together. The evidence is there. When you look around creation day, you see the evidence of God's amazing detail, of God's amazing hand. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Now, here's the thing. I've used this before as well. If time, matter, and space all began at one particular point in history, then the one who initiated, the one who instigated, has to be superior. Has to be. So therefore, the beginning, the one who began time, well, it makes sense then for the one who began time to be eternal. The, the one who, who created matter, well, it makes sense then that the one who created matter would have to be superior to matter, meaning they'd have to be a spirit. For space that's around us, well, then it would make sense then that the one that would create space would have to be without limit. All three descriptions that look at a great God who knows each one of you personally, who knows each one of you by name. That, that is absolutely amazing. So when we see these ancients, we see the outworkings of their faith in the Almighty. Not only in the recognition of his creative power, but also in their faith that is exercised. And this is in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 to 12. I'm not going to read the passage, but follow along in your Bibles, because we're going to look at each individual. We read of the following people from verses 4 to 12. We read of who? Abel. Abel, who offered a better sacrifice than Cain and was commended as righteous because of his exercise of faith. Now, granted, Cain's attitude is not a good attitude. Granted, Cain's attitude, I mean, it resulted in, in Cain killing his brother. But I don't think that was the reason why God rejected his sacrifice. It wasn't. Why? Because he offered a sacrifice. Abel offered a sacrifice that atoned for sin. Sorry, not Cain, Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice that atoned for sin. Abel offered a sacrifice that covered his sin. We are told that it was, it was the blood sacrifice. We're told in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. What did Abel offer? Abel offered the best of his flock, a lamb. Killed the lamb, shed blood, covered his sin. What did Cain offer? Cain offered fruit and vegetables. That doesn't cover sin because there's no blood to be shed. So essentially Cain approached God on his terms and said, I want to be accepted by you, God, on my terms. This is what I'm going to offer. But that's not what God asked for. 
God asked for a blood sacrifice to cover sin. And that's why. So he, by faith, obeyed the leading of God and offered that which was acceptable to God, an atonement for sin, the shedding of blood. Look at Enoch in verse 5 and 6, who had this one testimony. And this is an amazing testimony that he pleased God. Enoch walked with him and he pleased God. Now remember, there are no commandments here. There is no book of the law. There is none of that. And yet he pleased God so much so that God called him home without him seeing death. God translated him from this world into a divine existence without seeing death. He led a life that was so pleasing to the Lord because it was a life of faith. It is why the very next verse, in verse 6, we read what? That without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Why? Because faith is about trust. Faith is about dependence. Faith is about reliance. Faith is about looking. It's the action that follows what you believe about something or about someone. And Enoch demonstrated this. It was a life exercising faith through submission to God. It was a life of obedience and relationship through faith. And that's why without it, you cannot please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In, verses, in verse 7, we are told of Noah, who without knowing the specifics of what was to come, built an ark of gopher wood by faith. He was a preacher of righteousness of God's coming judgment by faith. And he faithfully proclaimed God's judgment and God's salvation from that judgment by faith. Right up until the point where God closed the door. That is why we read in the second half of verse 7, By his faith, Noah condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah, without even understanding, stood out by faith, not because his faith was great, but because it was in a great God. That's why. Abraham, in verses 8 and 10, we read this, that he was called away from his home to get up and go, and he didn't even know where he was going. He didn't even know what the destination was. Where he is told in Genesis 12 that he's to get up and go to this place, and then God will tell him where to go from there. And what did he do? He did it. He got up and went. He obeyed and received blessing. He received descendants beyond number, uh, beyond the stars in the sky that we're told within the scriptures. And he has an impact in human history that's effective even now through the person of Jesus Christ. It went far beyond anything Abraham could have asked or imagined. Then we're told of Sarah in verses 11 and 12, who, being well past her age, was blessed with giving birth to a son, the child of promise, we are told. And that it was through that child that the rest of the world, the rest of creation, would be blessed. So, these ancients of faith point to the fact that one's relationship with God isn't based upon a set of rules isn't based on a set of lists that need to be held to. It doesn't need to be uh, based upon various laws because none of them existed at that point in time. The law did not come about until Moses in Exodus 20. Oswald Chambers said this though, that, I mean, the relationship that these people had is what I call a relational faith, a real interaction 
with the God of creation. Oswald Chambers said this, quote, God does not have to come and tell me what I must do for him. He brings me into a relationship with himself where I hear his call and understand what he wants me to do. And I do it out of sheer love to him. This means that their relationship to God has enabled them to realize what they can then do for God. This is what we see in these ancients. That because of the relationship, and you know this in the relationships that you have with your friends or with your children or with your spouse, that when in a marriage, so Brad and Cass, you know, you know they've been married now for, oh, how long now, guys? Four months. They've been married now for four months. And, in the, and I'm sure, I'm sure, as newlyweds, they don't spend time writing the list of what can and can't be done without their home. Within their home, should I say. Without their home. Without their farm. Okay, so, but I, because of the relationship they share, they don't set a list of rules. Why? Because they automatically know what's expected of them as a husband and as a wife. And because of the relationship they share as a husband and a wife, they seek to honor the other by doing what pleases the other, by being understanding, by being caring. You automatically come to that conclusion as you grow in the relationship. And this is what we see demonstrated with these ancients here. It emphasizes the importance of what I said, relational faith, of knowing God as a person, of responding to God as a person, of submitting to God as a person, of obeying God as a person. This is what Abel's case was when God deemed his sacrifice as acceptable. This is what happened in, the, in Enoch's case as he walked by faith, pleasing the Lord. This is what happened in Noah's case when God delivered him from the coming judgment. In Abraham's case, when God blessed him abundantly. In Sarah's case, when he opened her womb. Relational faith that focuses on the Lord as he reveals himself to them, but also to us. And how we discover that aspect of our relational faith with him too. See, this is what faith defined and faith exercised look like. If you have an understanding of what faith is, biblical faith, then you have no issue then stepping out and exercising that faith. And like a muscle, it gets strong with every step that you take while you rely on the Lord. And then we see this, at the end of, of this, from verses 13 to 16, what I like to call faith rewarded. Faith rewarded. Read with me, okay, starting from verse 13. All these people still living by faith when they died, they did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In a brief sentence, what it means is this, that they are looking forward to the divine and not back to the temporal. They are looking forward to their eternal destination, not back to what they had just come from. They are looking to the promised land, not to Egypt. That is where faith is rewarded because it gives you the idea that you are to be heavenly minded. You are looking beyond the temporal. You're looking beyond what is the here and now. 
This is why we are told over and over again in the scriptures that we are to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth, as it says in Colossians 3. That we are to lay for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal in Matthew 6. We're to have our hearts and minds directed to that better country, a heavenly one where God has prepared a city for us. We're told this in John 14, that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, he's going to come back and take us unto himself. John 14, verses 1 to 3. So, the illustration is given of, of, by this guy named uh, Reverend Donnie Fredrickson, and it's regarding appetizers at a meal. Now, I don't know too much about appetizers. The only time I really have appetizers is whether I'm at a wedding or at some family function that's usually paid for by somebody else. Okay? So, um, I'm, not, I'm not sort of... Too, I went to one, I went to one uh, Japanese place where the whole meal was 10 appetizers. And it was... Um, I think the first one was, the first one was a, a, a rock oyster, a rock oyster with sea salt and a little bit of lemon juice, and it was really nice. And I thought, wow, I'm looking forward to the next one. And it just went downhill from there. It was like the, one, the, the, the first course was good, and the other nine just got progressively worse. And it was, it was shocking. Anyway, that's enough about my, 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 my meals, okay? But here's the thing. When appetizers show up, often the first response to people like me and most Polynesians, we look at it and it's this tiny little thing. And you're like, is that it? Is that it? What? There's nothing to it. One bite and it's gone. That's usually what happens. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. But the point of the appetizer is not to fill you up. The point of the appetizer is to whet the appetite in preparation for what is to come. It's not to be the whole meal. It is merely the invitation to the, home, to, to the, to the greater meal. It's merely the little, the little door ajar to show what's going to come next. So this life that we go through, the trials that we experience, the events that we participate in, the victories that we have, all that we partake in in the here and now is to be an appetizer for what is to come is to prepare us for the, the taste of the divine. It's to prepare our earthly palates for the taste of the heavenly. That's what our life is now. Reverend Donnie says this, As Christians, we find our ultimate hope in eternal life with Christ. But that doesn't prevent us from being constantly tempted to hold on to this earthly life. John Calvin warns that we will not really ponder or desire the life to come until we are filled. Sorry. John Calvin warns that we are not really, that we will not really ponder or desire the life to come until we are filled with contempt for the present life. There is no middle ground. The world must be worthless to us or we will be hamstrung with the dis disordered love of it. And that's true. We know of what is to come. We read in the scriptures the blessing held in store for us in our eternal destiny with the Lord Jesus. We know that. And yet we get hamstrung by our desires for a contented enjoy enjoyment of this life. We hold on to earthly treasures thinking that they will never be or could never be taken from us. I mean, look at this. We've had our freedoms compromised. 
We've had our careers compromised. We've had so many aspects of our lives compromised, taken from us, just like that. And thus, for us to hold on to those things and think that we'll find ultimate purpose in them is ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It is why we are to have the correct view of what our life is. And biblically, we are told that our life is but a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. That our, our vapor, our lives in this life, are but smoke and shadow. Our life is but smoke. Psalm 102 verse 3 says this, For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. We are in, moving another step, another day to eternity. And nothing we do will change that. And our lives are like a shadow. Psalm 102, verse 11. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So we shouldn't try to fill our lives or fill ourselves with this temporal life. Christ has come to give us life. Yes. Christ has come to give us life in abundance. Yes. Christ has come to deliver us from this present evil world. Yes, but the deliverance from sin that the Lord Jesus purchased for us by shedding his blood on the cross and then raising again the third day was not so we as his people can spend the rest of our lives enjoying this present existence. That's not why he delivered us. He delivered us so that we might live above this life and in the heavenly realms where we are seated with Christ. He has given us life so that we can know the fullness of what life is because it is based upon him in heaven. That's why. Uh, I love this quote. If our appetites are turned toward the trials and disappointments and hardships of this present evil age, we will be despondent, frustrated and disappointed and that's exactly what we've been experiencing today frustration because we think god why aren't you easing the covid restrictions god why did i lose my job god why why is there so much difficulty where we spend time away and disconnected from each other if we're going to spend all our time focusing on what's happening here and now yes we will be despondent yes we will be frustrated yes we will be disappointed and the enemy will play on that so that we will blame god when we're not even supposed to be focusing on the here and now anyway that's what we need to come to understand but if we enter the sanctuary of the lord and then we see the end of these lights and momentary afflictions, we will be blessed abundantly. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, we read this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If we look by faith to the resurrection, we'll see the power of the cross. If we look by faith at the, at the risen Christ, we see triumph over the devil. We see victory over our enemies. That's what we'll see, which then challenges us with this closing thought. Do we release this world to the Lord, are we holding too tightly onto it? 
granted, this world can be difficult, but we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We have to value the world for what it is, a foretaste of what is to come. The blessing that is in store for us. And that is faith's reward as we exercise our faith. That we get to experience in the here and now the joys of the then and not yet. Let me explain. We get to experience the shadow in this life, the, I guess you could say just a taste of the substance of the life that is to come. Think about that. We got to sing worship this morning. You and your homes, us here while we're in the church. But that singing of worship is but a taste of the glory and of the, the majesty of singing praises to our God with all the saints throughout history, throughout all eternity, from eternity past to eternity future. We get to join all of them in song as we worship our God in person. That time of fellowship, that time of, of singing, that is just a taste of what's to come. The blessing of fellowship that we get to enjoy in the here and now, even though that we are disconnected and distant, when things open up again, the blessing of being together here in this building, that is but a taste of the eternal fellowship we'll have, not only with saints from eternity past and eternity future, but also with Jesus Christ himself. We'll get to sit out and hang out with Jonah and ask Jonah, why did you run, man? We could, we could sit down and we could ask Paul and see what Paul really looks like. He said, bro, that was amazing. We, we could sit, I could sit down, there's a guy named Phil Samuels, great, there's a godly man, to talk with Phil who I haven't seen in, in well over 30 years. We get to be a, so that, the taste of fellowship we have, that's why you should appreciate the fact that you and I can connect with each other now, because that is a taste of what we have in store for us. The privilege and intimacy that you and I get to share by being in prayer. We have prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and I would love for you to come. Why? Because that's a taste of how we not only can pray together as brothers and sisters, but we are entering the throne room of grace and talking with the Lord Jesus himself. Now think about this. Imagine doing that in person, which is what we'll get to do. We'll get to literally enter the throne room of God and talk with the Lord Jesus himself. And we don't, we don't have to ask for things because we'll have anything, anything, everything in Christ. But we can praise him personally as a taste of things to come. The honor that we have now of confessing him before men is but a taste of when we stand before him and he confesses us before his father. That's amazing. That God will sit there and so the Lord Jesus will sit there and say to his heavenly father, this is Joyce, a faithful servant of you, who served diligently. This is Brad, who owned a farm. You know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. We get to do that where God will confess us to himself. The Lord Jesus will confess us. It's absolutely amazing. If you've got your Bibles, turn quickly. And like I said, the joy of singing songs of praise now in our home or at the church building is a taste of the heavenly host that shouts, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and right are his judgments. When we get to sing and proclaim, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Revelation 19, 2, 6, and 7. 
This is what we have now. This is faith's reward that we're looking beyond the here and now and having the privilege to have a taste of what heaven will be like as we fellowship, as we pray, as we meditate in his word, as we, as we come along and proclaim the gospel to those who don't know Jesus, as we get to enter into his throne room and acknowledge him. That is the taste of what is to come. And that is faith's reward, not being bound by the here and now, but filled with hope for the then and yet to come. Yeah, that's where our focus should be. That's how our focus should change, should it change. And I pray that that is what will come about in your heart and in mine and for us as a church. Um, Hebrews, sorry, Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says this. May the God of hope fill us with the heart for heavenly things, the desire to live with what's to come and, and use the appetizer of this life to stir us for that life to come. Sorry, this is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope filled with faith, faith that is inhabited by Christ as we have our focus, our spiritual senses change from down here to up there. May that be the reality in each of our lives as we move on from today, and especially as we pray about the changes that are going to happen in the future. Whatever, whatever's going to happen, whether things open up, whether things get more tighter and restrictions, we have our focus in the right area. If we have our focus up on high, if we have our eyes directed towards Christ, then it doesn't matter what will happen. We will be contented because we are in Christ. So with that, brothers and sisters... I'd like you to bow your heads and we'll close in a word of prayer. Once again, encourage somebody today, connect with someone today and make the most of it. The fact that you can have a taste through fellowship, a taste through prayer, a taste of, of reading the word of what is to come in Christ. Yeah, that's exciting. Let's pray, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the example given to us in the scriptures. We thank you so much for the blessing of seeing you work and do amazing things through sinful people like us. Thank you for the example of, of Abel and of Enoch and of Noah, of Abraham and of Sarah, and how you, through the relationship you shared with them, were able to do amazing things. Father, we know you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you desire to work those same wonders in each of our lives. We pray that today will not be a day that goes to waste, but rather will you stir our hearts, will you change our focus, will you give us a desire for things to come and not just for things on this earth. We ask for your help to do this, Lord. Please help us. Please change us. Please challenge us. We commit ourselves into your capable hands and we are excited as to what you will do, not only with us as individuals, but with GCC as your church. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.